woman that God is going to create to come alongside Adam is not created in the image of Adam. She is also created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, like her husband, Adam. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, it's fascinating how united people are on Twitter. That's, that's a joke, by the way. Uh, it is fascinating how divided people are on Twitter, even over how to punctuate sentences. For example, here is a sentence that, depending on your bias, you'll punctuate this sentence very differently. Woman without her man is helpless. So many people will punctuate it this way. They'll say, woman without her man is helpless. But other people will punctuate it completely different. They'll punctuate it this way. Woman without her man is helpless. It's very interesting that uh, we seem to have a little bias. Now, when we think about gender, we think about women and men, there's often two camps pitted against each other, and it's not just women against men. So on one side, there are the extreme group and in the extreme group, and so on this side, we have the feminists who in recent days would make statements like, don't take away my rights, while seeking to uphold a 49-year-old Supreme Court opinion that has taken away the right to life, from unborn female babies. Feminists aren't advocating for equality with men, typically, as much as they are pushing for female superiority. So it's not just women should be equal with men, it's men are inferior to women. But then on the other side, the other extreme, we have the misogynists, who apparently want women to stand quietly in the kitchen and Make me a sandwich. There's actually a track written in 1615 by an English fencing master. And he literally said this in the track that was distributed around society. The track says, women are crooked by nature. Even the fairest woman has some filthiness in her. Going uh, all the way back to Eve, this very grumpy swordsman said, womankind, quote, was no sooner made, but straightway her mind was set upon mischief For by her aspiring mind and wanton will, she quickly procured man's fall, and therefore ever since they are and have been a woe unto man and follow the line of their first leader. I'm sure his wife found him a joy to spend afternoons with. (laughs) Today you hear a lot about toxic masculinity, but the the truth is true masculinity isn't as toxic as it is biblical. But see, the church has given into the culture and we've recoiled from reading scriptures about being a man. And so what, what has happened is we've overly feminized our worship gatherings to soften or blur the edges. We used to sing songs about God, about his grandeur, about his might and his worth, great hymns of old, and yet today we sing songs not about him but to him as our divine romantic lover, and these songs are steeped in emotional expression. Sermons used to be proclamations of declared truth to rouse an army to war, but we've shifted our sermons to motivating therapeutic sessions of advice and storytelling. And somehow the Christian faith lately has also been mislabeled as misogynistic, as though the Bible itself 
is the thing that suppresses women, when in reality, if you do any bit of history, you realize that Christianity has been the great liberator of women in any and every culture that the gospel has infiltrated. Our culture wants our Disney princesses to stop being so helpless and to actually start saving the emasculated prince. And so in response to extreme femininity on one side or extreme masculinity on the other, the world's response is to blur the genders, actually to erase gender norms, gender roles, to the extent that only in the last 10 years or so, our society has welcomed transgenderism as acceptable. Transgender, transgenderism is, yes, an assault on both genders, but particularly it's an assault against women. You've seen the news, a transgendered woman who's biologically a man and not a gold medalist as a man, uh, recently competed in sporting events uh, for women and is able to win sweeping world records because men and women are very uh, distinct biologically. And, and so when we look and review male and female DNA, what do we find? We find XX or XY. And there are massive differences between the sexes, not only biologically, but physiologically, even nutritionally. I'm setting this up to get to our text, but I found this insightful uh, from a particular medical journal. It said, on average, and I do have to say that up front, there are extremes, there are exceptions, but on average, men have more muscle mass. They also have denser, stronger bones, tendons, and ligaments than women. Women's muscles are, though, more readily able to resist fatigue and typically, on average, can recover faster than men's. Women's second longest finger is their index finger, whereas men, our ring finger, is typically longer than their index. And I just lost half of you who are now looking at your fingers <laughs> to confirm this. Do it later. Men need more caloric intake daily than women do, and when exercising, women's primary fuel is fat, whereas for men, our primary fuel is carbohydrates. One study found that men have a lower resting heart rate than women, but women have lower peak heart rates and typically have lower blood pressure than men, regardless of race or ethnicity. I think we all knew this, but men are less sensitive to cold temperatures, whereas women have better senses of smell and taste, and that's by design. They have actually 50 more uh, neurons in their olfactory bulbs, the part of the brain responsible for processing smells. So when we look at all of these differences, just at the physiological level, we have to ask, is this an accident? Is this a product of evolution in billions or millions of years? Or is this by God's gracious design? So we have the masculine characteristics typically of status, of independence, of strength, and of leadership, and risk. And when those are on display in men lately, that's seen as toxic. But when displayed by women, it's championed. On the other hand, the feminine virtues of intimacy, connection, modesty, reception, security, and care, those seem to be deflated or grossly caricatured. And, and so what we can do is we can look to the world to help us define gender or to rightly understand women, uh, but we really will find ourselves confused because the world, even today, can't decide what pronouns work anymore. And I believe society would prefer an androgynous or sexless society. So we can't look to the world to help us define what is a woman. We actually must consult the Holy Scriptures. And we, in the Scriptures today, will see the original intent and design in God's good creation. 
As we open our Bibles to the very first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 26, we read that God creates mankind in his own image. And in verse 27, if you know it with me, he creates the genders male and female. Binary, if you would, and that's not something to be embarrassed about or to apologize for. That's how God in his good creation made us. He then blessed them, man and woman, male and female, and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with more blessable image bearers. This morning, we're going to study the very end of chapter 2 of Genesis, and we're going to see the first mother, the first woman, Adam's helpmate Eve. But as we study this together on Mother's Day, I want us to understand God's creative care and his intentionality in creating distinct genders, in creating the gift that we have in women, and in God's sovereign care for each one of us. And let me just say up front, and I'll say it again towards the end of the sermon, God's a blessing of you as an image bearer uh, and God's blessing of you as a woman, it transcends your ability to mother children. just want to point that out at the beginning. You have intrinsic worth and value whether or not you have the ability to mother children. So today we're going to study and see three things in our text together on the screen. We'll write these down. We're going to see in verses 18 and 20 a supposed weakness. There's something missing here. We're going to see then the woman in verses 21 through 23, and then we're going to see the first wedding in verses 24 and 25. So let's begin by looking at the, and I, I guess I'd put quotes, the quote weakness. Look at verse 18. It says, then Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, last week we uh, saw Adam in the mountain garden, this temple, working and keeping it to the glory of God. But Adam's work is incomplete. Adam cannot fulfill this role of working and keeping the garden. He cannot do that alone. So we read here in verse 18 that God's assessment of Adam, as God uh, looks at Adam on day six, his assessment of Adam being alone is not good. Remember, God, over and over in chapter one, he reviews his creation after each day and says, it is good. Uh, And yet, we find out that God says here in verse 18, it's not good that man is alone. Now, that's not Adam's assessment. Adam doesn't say, this is not good, God. Nor do we read anywhere that Adam was discontented or dissatisfied with the Garden of Eden and he was feeling deficient. But there's something going on that's greatly lacking. He's lacking a suitable helper, a helper that's fit for him. One person said this, they said in the evangelical commentary on the Bible, they said the Hebrew word for suitable here suggests something that completes a polarity as the North Pole is suitable to the South Pole. One without the other is incomplete. So we learn right out of the gate, something's not good. It's that Adam's alone. So we also infer from these next few verses that God calls Adam not only to be priest and gardener, but also a taxonomist. Notice with me, The next few verses, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. So as Adam is naming each one of these animals, they parade in front of him, platypus, aardvark, frilled neck lizard, 
as he's naming these animals, none of these are a complementary fit for mankind. So God decrees he's going to make Adam a helper that best fits him. So would you just for a moment please underline that word helper in verse 20. It says, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. A helper. Now before the feminists come for our heads, it's important to understand this term helper does not in any way imply inferiority. I just have to tell you that right out of the gate. This word, let me repeat it. This word helper does not imply inferiority. The Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R. And it occurs 21 times in the Old Testament, twice here in Genesis. When we look at this word outside of this text, it's used three times to describe people helping or failing to help in a life-threatening situation. And the other 16 times, it's used in reference to God himself as helper. So without exception, these texts, this word ezer in the text, uh, in the context, it's talking about a vital, an urgent, and an important, powerful kind of helper. In fact, in Hosea 13, 9, God is called Israel's helper. He's the helper of Israel. In no way does that imply that God is inferior. In fact, God is adequate and fitted to be what Israel needs. He's the helper. In the New Testament, we have Hebrews 13.6 on the screen. It says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. When man threatens to undo us, when we have people coming against us, when we're threatened with persecution, with trials of various kinds, the writer of Hebrews reminds those battered down believers that you can look to Yahweh as your helper. And so in no way is this a derogatory word. It's a word that actually, on the contrary, conveys importance. It shows Adam needed Eve. He was not complete without her. Adam cannot do this alone. It's, first of all, simply impossible for him to fulfill the command of fill the earth and, and, uh, and be fruitful and multiply. He can't do that by himself. But he's also insufficient in himself to truly cultivate and govern the earth by himself. It is good that man exists, but it is not good that he's alone. The woman that God is going to create to come alongside Adam is not created in the image of Adam. She is also created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, like her husband Adam. So God creates the male and female. They are complementary, but they're distinct genders. Eve is the willing subordinate designed to come alongside and strengthen and cooperate with Adam. Eve was created from Adam, but she was created for Adam because by himself, he was not fully empowered to complete the task God had designed him to complete. He needed an alongside helper. And Eve, as we'll see in the next few weeks, she needed Adam. She, as we'll see in Genesis 3, was undiscerning and without her husband stepping in to protect her from the serpent's lies, she ends up taking the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating. And we know when she gave it to her husband Adam, when he ate, sin enters the world, not through Eve, but through Adam. He had not stepped up and protected the garden. He didn't keep it. So Eve's worth, her value, and her help to Adam was not merely in her ability to conceive and bear children. I have to point that out. Adam needed her and she needed him. And as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, he said, nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. 
and all things are from God. His argument is that Eve came, she did come from Adam, but all of us as humans come from our mother. And so we are not independent one from another. And so we see this perceived weakness in this first section. But now let's see how Eve was created in the second section. Look with me at verse 21. So here's the need now God provides, as he has been throughout chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So Adam is put in a sort of coma, and God removes a rib. God forms woman not from the dust of the earth, but from the rib. And incidentally, just as an aside, men, we do not have one less rib than women. Um, that's what I learned in Sunday school growing up. And then when I found out that medically was not true, I was a little mad. So just so you know, uh, scientifically, that's not true of any man except Adam in particular. Matthew Henry said this, and I love this. I share this at every wedding, and I did yesterday at Chris Rouleau and Amanda Imperato's glorious wedding. Uh, yesterday. Matthew Henry says, woman was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. See, Eve was not inferior in any way, contrary to what Archie Bunker may believe. And so notice what the man said as God brings the woman to the man. Verse 23, he said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Even the Hebrew word for woman, you can see woman, W-O-M-A-N. It's, it's a derivative. It's connected to man. And that's by design. Even the Hebrew word for woman is connected to the, uh, to the Hebrew word Adam for man. And so he says, at last. And when he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. One person stated, this is like giving the ancient equivalent of in our weakness and in our strength. Bone is strength, flesh is weak. So she was made of my own strength and of my own weakness. Now it's important to note here, Eve is not disembodied. She was given a body. She was created and given this biological body. Her gender as woman is connected to her physical body, assigned to her at creation, if you will. So this whole notion of distinguishing gender from biology is just a clever trap, but it's nothing more. Now, my fellow creation science nerds want to know, when did this happen? When did this happen? We understand that Genesis 2 is a recapitulation of Genesis chapter 1, and we know in Genesis chapter 1 that God creates Adam on day 6, as well as the land animals. But then God rested on the seventh day. So when did this, did, did, did Eve get created after? Did, did God go back and do a recreation? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that God created Eve on the sixth day. He created her on the same day as Adam. Because remember, God saw his creation, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and he said it was very good. But here we have him saying it's not good. So we would say it's very clear he created Eve just a little bit after Adam. But it's important to note and the New Testament notes it was after Adam. You see, Paul uses the created order of Adam first and then Eve second in both 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians to make some parallel points about the church gathering and prayer. His argument is that because man was created first, that's not an order of importance, but it's an order of authority. So in the church and in the home, men, because Adam was created first, 
Men are to lead under the headship and rule of Christ, and women are to submit and not resist her husband's authority. So Adam, being created first, gives him not more importance, but it gives him a unique role. And so there is a unique dependence and connection that Adam has for Eve and that Eve has to Adam that cannot be overlooked. Now, nowhere in this text do we get the hierarchical notion that Eve is created as the servant of man. She is designed as a perfect helper to complement Adam. And if you're married, husbands, this is where you want to say amen really loud because your wife is here with you. Uh, but husbands, uh, this is where we look at our helper, our helpmate, the, the woman that God has given to us. And we can say with, with clarity, we can say amen, that God has given us a perfect complement, a perfect fit for us. And after being married for 22 years, I see God's gracious, his incredible design in marriage, wondrously ordaining this covenant to put someone alongside me and alongside you as a husband who is exactly who we need them to be. I've done premarital counseling for many couples, and it's always fascinating to me to see how they are just perfectly offset. One has these strengths. The other has these strengths. These weaknesses are often offset by these person's strengths and vice versa, and it's just wonderful to see that in God's gracious design. God gives us marriage to help us enable our lives to glorify God. And so we come to verses 24 and 25 and the first wedding. And there's a few things that are missing here. So let me read the verses and then we'll figure out what's missing. Verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's a few things missing here. Maybe you notice them. You can jot these down. But first of all, there is no father and mother. This is only Adam and Eve. So what's happening here is this is a template for future weddings. This is a template for this reason. Therefore, because God has brought woman and perfectly fit her to her husband, therefore, because of that, in the future, for every wedding that is ordained under God's sovereignty, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to or hold fast to his wife. So there's no father and mother here, just Adam and Eve. But in another sense, God the Father is presiding over this wedding. But secondly, notice what else is missing. There's no marriage certificate here. This is not the state that came up with marriage. Uh, I pointed out in the wedding yesterday, if we came up with marriage as humans, we would probably fail at some point. We'd make it into some legal contract. We'd make it into a business partnership. We'd make it just about two people who love one another. But that's not what marriage is about. Marriage is something that God has graciously given us that is a picture of Christ and his church. And so there's no marriage certificate. I said yesterday, this is, this is kind of fun. Uh, our marriage certificates, our marriage licenses really are a learner's permit, aren't they? We're not really figuring this thing out until glory. Uh, so there's a marriage certificate that's missing. The state can recognize a union, but this is a covenant that God has given us. And so he's the one that gets the glory, not the state. Thirdly, notice what else is missing. There's no other witnesses. But we can't forget that God himself is a witness. And a marriage, I just want to point this out, a marriage is illegitimate if there are no witnesses. There have been many manipulative men throughout history who tell their girlfriends, hey, we're married in our hearts, but they fail to have any witnesses to that or to actually 
uh, publicly vow uh, to the state and in front of witnesses of this sacred bond. And so there doesn't seem to be witnesses, but we know God himself is witness. And there's one more thing missing in this relationship. Maybe you missed it, but clothing. Clothing is missing. Note with me, Adam and Eve were both naked, and yet they were not ashamed. Now, this is more than just physical nudity. This has to do with total transparency, total intimacy, and complete safeguarded trust. When you are naked, you are exposed, you are vulnerable, but when you are in a marriage relationship where God is glorified, you are safe and you're secure. So in this garden paradise, man is joined to his wife. And just think about this for a minute, church. There was no guile. There was no pretense. There was no division. There was no self-centered agendas. There, there was no faithlessness. There was no adultery. There were no arguments. There was no fighting over my side of the bed. There was none of that. There was just unbroken, unhindered union, joy, steadfast love, and intimate oneness. Can you imagine? This was God's good design. This was a covenant that would live as long as life endured. But as we just glance ahead one chapter, we see in Genesis 3 that the fall of man unravels this covenant. And now instead of two perfect creatures fully united, we now have two self-centered sinners who war not only against the Spirit, but also against one another. And we see marriage itself marred by the curse. In fact, just look at it with me very quickly. Turn over to chapter 3 and note with me in verse 16, God says to the woman as part of the curse, not only the pain and childbearing, but notice the second half of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You see, there's this dissonance now. Instead of desiring what is, uh, what is my husband's desires, now it's what is contrary to my husband. And the husband will now, as part of the curse, will now dominate. There'll be this rule rather than this leadership. And so we see this division happening because of the fall, but that was not in God's good design. Now, I just want to draw our attention to three aspects of marriage from these verses. And I think these are important to point out when we think about us as married couples. First of all, note with me, and I think we'll put them on the screen, and that is that two individuals are uniting as one. Husband and wife are created by God to complement, to fit one another. We each have a distinct role, and even though we're equal, we are different. Husbands, we learn in Scripture, are, as an individual, joined in marriage. We're to love our wives. We're to lay down our lives for our wife. And wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, submission is a very popular word today on The View. If you're to watch The View, you'll see them. They just love to talk about submission. Submission is not, though, it's not obedience. It is a willful desire to honor God. And we see submission even within the, the Godhead. Jesus is one and co-equal with the Father, and yet he is distinct from the Father, and yet chooses to honor and subordinate himself to the Father's will. Submission is a beautiful picture of honor, and these two complementary relationships flourishing under God's wisdom and direction bring glory and honor to him. When these two distinctly individual people come together and fulfill the role that God has given them, God is glorified, and both of them are graciously provided for in love. So a married couple 
Notice what we don't read. We don't read in Genesis chapter 2 that the two will leave father and mother and they shall continue to be two people. It says they'll become one flesh. Married couples are not two strangers living in solidarity, but those who are cleaving to one another. They're joining together. They're leaving and cleaving. That is covenantal language. This is something God has given us. And this is something powerful. And a lot of, sadly, a lot of marriages continue as if they are not one flesh. They live separate lives. They're disjointed. And that's not how God designed it. Well, secondly, we learn from this text that the bride and the groom are now identified by their relationship. It says in verse 24 that they leave father and mother. And so their relationship now marks their identity. In fact, the last name of the woman is often changed to the name of the last man. So uh, any past relationships which may have previously defined the identity is now eclipsed by this relationship. I remember the day that uh, we got married, obviously, but then the next week I was, I was now wearing my wedding ring. And I just remember people glancing at my wedding ring and I was so thankful that I could, I could show people that I have a new identity, uh, that I am now a new person and I belong to someone. But we also learn here that marriage, number three, it gives us not only a new identity, so to speak, but it also gives us intimacy without shame. You see, there's lots of unbelievers that are naked without shame. But see, the idea here is that in a relationship, a marriage relationship, we don't have to cover our sin. We don't have to cover our failures. We can let all of our insecurities, our frailties, our weaknesses, and our sin be shown to our spouse. And we can trust that as we confess our sin to them, we can be forgiven of God and forgiven by our spouse. And that we can actually be safeguarded uh, in our frailty. Now, I tell you those three things because as we move from creation to new creation, we read in Ephesians 5 that this covenant, marriage, is not just a human thing. It's given by God to point us to a more eternal and divine covenant, and that's the union of Christ with his church. You see, marriage is that human display of the love of God for his bride. And Jesus, as we know in the scriptures, gave up his life for his church. He loves his church. We as husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for his people. And that means that you and I, who are we? We are the bride of Christ. So you think about those three things, naked and unashamed. We now in our helpless and sinful state, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He receives us to himself forgiven and radiant. He presents his bride to himself cleansed from the shame of our sin. Imagine that, that we can have intimacy with him with even our nakedness. Not only that, but Jesus, our bridegroom, now identifies with his church. We, in our identity, have now died and been united with Christ because of his death and resurrection. Romans 7.4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. In that uh, context of Romans 7, he's talking about someone who dies in a relationship and that the death of that husband now allows them to be remarried. You and I have died with Christ and now we've been joined together with him and now our identity is marked by Christ. And that happens through baptism. In a sense, our wedding ring. That baptism displays to the world that we now have a new identity. We belong to Christ. 
And not only that, but we're no longer individuals. We are now collectively saints. We're joined together with Christ, and nothing can separate us from his love. You don't seem convinced of the glory of this. It's incredible to know that we as the church are now the bride, the beloved bride. And in Revelation, we read about the wedding supper of the Lamb. I appreciate how Shane Swayze last week uh, gave us such a great picture uh, of what we have to look forward to and uh, that communion really is a celebration uh, that we will have one day with our bridegroom. And so marriage is a picture of that. If you're married, your, your love that you display to your spouse is wonderful, but it's, it's eclipsed by a greater love, and that's the love that God has for his church. Now, uh, before we close, I want to address an important question. Since we talked about Eve, the creation of woman, we began with this idea of gender. I want to address the important question, how do we as genders interact within the church? Some have sought to blur male and female within the church, citing verses like Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, there you have it, case closed, gender is dissolved in Christ. People would say from that verse, women can be elders, women can teach the gathered assembly of the saints with authority, and men now can lead women's Bible studies. Actually, they shouldn't have women's Bible studies anymore because there's no male and female. So is that what Paul is saying in context? Well, the reality is that in Galatians 3 in context, Paul is there speaking about our salvation. Our Christian identity, he's saying, it supersedes our ethnic identity. It supersedes our socioeconomic identity and even our gender identity. And so in our salvation, there's no bias. There's no prejudice. It's not, well, you can come to Christ and be saved if you're a man, but if you're a woman, off limits. No, in Christ, in salvation, there is none of these uh, eliminations. So how do we, if that's the case, if, if we still maintain our ethnicity, we still maintain our gender, how do we then minister one to another in the church? Is there a place for men's ministry or women's ministry? I just thought this would be helpful as application. When Paul addresses Titus, he gives them some outlines about how the men are to minister to men and how women are to as well. So notice on the screen, you can jot these verses down, read them later. But Titus 2 says this. It says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And then he comes back to the young men. Likewise, the, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So leaving that verse up for a moment. The pastor elders are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the entire church is to be equipped and edified in the whole counsel of God. That's an important distinction. And then the older men and the older women, they're to set an example to the rest of the covenant community in a few things. Notice in sobriety, in reverence, in dignity, and in faithfulness. The men are to come alongside the younger men 
to encourage them how to walk out their Christian walk. How do I do this with self-controlled sanctification? That's where the mature men come in and say, I got you. Let me show you. Let me model this for you. Let me encourage you. So men's ministry really should be the, the wiser, steadfast men who have grown in their faith. It doesn't mean they have to be old, old, old. But they're older in their faith. They're grown in their faith. And they pour into those men who are seeking to grow and who need a model to look to and encourage them. So men's ministry is to look like that. And shooting and breakfast. It should include those two things as well. The older women in the faith, they have an even stronger mandate, ostensibly, from Titus than the men do. Notice they are to teach and even train the young women in the faith how to love their husbands and children, how to live these pure, kind, and deferential lives toward their families and towards others. Why? So that the word of God is not reviled. So this can be overly organized, or it can be very natural from one woman to another. But I think the point that Paul is making is that if the pastors are teaching the scripture, what is sound doctrine, and, and the mature men and women in the church are sitting under sound doctrine, but they never transmit that sound doctrine, that discipleship to the younger members in the faith, then God's word itself may in fact be reviled. Sound doctrine is not merely the, the transmission of intellectual truth, but it's clothing us as Christ's body with doctrine that we wear at home, that, that we as husbands live with our wives, that wives with husbands, with parents, with children, and even with our friendships and with the world. So listen, this is not this person needs to. I wish the church would have. This is a responsibility for you, for each one of us. We all have a responsibility to either pour into someone or to ask someone we respect. If we look up to them, would you take the time to pray for me and to help me grow? So this is for all of us. I just want to encourage you as men and as women. Now, as we close, I want to speak just a moment for the ladies. Go ahead and close your Bibles. Today, ladies, we want to celebrate all of you because Mother's Day is a day we normally recognize those who are moms and those who are mothers-to-be. We have a few of those here. But we also want to recognize mothers who are not-to-be. Days like today, we just want to acknowledge they can carry an extra load of grief and sorrow if you have not been able to be pregnant or if you've miscarried. We see the joy and the blessing of those who have children, but we also see your faith, lament, loss, and pain for those of you who have not. And so today, we just want to celebrate you. We just want to honor you. Today, we also want to recognize every daughter of Eve, every daughter of Eve who has sought to find their worth in what they can produce and what they can conceive in their work, rather than in the simple truth that you are created in the image of God, and you are vastly underrating how important your worth, value, and dignity truly is apart from anything that you do. We want to recognize those of you particularly who stay at home and feel, I need to be doing more for the Lord. I'm just, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I wish I could do more for the kingdom, more for the community, more for the glory of God. Well, may these closing words from Spurgeon encourage and uplift your hearts particularly. Spurgeon said, those who think that a woman detained at home by her little family is doing nothing, think the reverse of what is true. 
Scarcely can the godly mother quit her home for a place of worship, but dream not that she is lost to the work of the church. Far from it. She is doing the best possible service for her Lord. Mothers, the godly training of your offspring is your first and most pressing duty. Christian women, by teaching children the holy scriptures, are as much fulfilling their part for the Lord as Moses in judging Israel or Solomon in building the temple. Amen. So we celebrate you today. And with that, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your good design in creating Eve, the mother of the living, and Lord, in creating each woman in the Imago Dei. We thank you that there is intrinsic worth, value, dignity, not in what we do as women, as men, in our roles, but in the fact that we are created in your image. Lord, that we bear the stamp of God upon us. We thank you, Lord, that we today can celebrate our moms and celebrate those who, through loss and grief, find today to be particularly troubling or difficult. We pray for comfort. We pray for encouragement. We pray for honor where honor is due. Lord, we ask that you would help us to love our moms well today. If we're estranged from them, far from them, Lord, would you allow us the opportunity to reach out to them. Some of our moms have passed into eternity, and we remember them today and thank you for their memory and for how they led us to this point where we can be confessing Christ. Lord, we ask that you would bless this time as we close, as we conclude in song. We thank you, Lord, that you're glorified through this glorious gift of the covenant of marriage. May our marriages reflect your good glory in this community, we pray. For your name, for your renown, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.